This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Matthew Amarik's new film, Hold Me Tight, starring Vicky Creeps. In this Cannes Film Festival in Rendezvous with French Cinema selection, Creeps gives a tour de force performance as a woman on the run from her family for mysterious reasons. Little White Lies calls it further proof that Vicky Creeps is one of the world's most exciting actors. Hold Me Tight opens September 9th at Film at Lincoln Center with a sneak preview on September 8th, followed by a Q&A with Amarique and Creeps. And don't miss the duo's appearance at a Film Comment Live Talk on Friday, September 9th at 6.30 p.m. at Film at Lincoln Center. More details are available at filmlink.org. Hold Me Tight also opens on September 9th at the Angelica Film Center in New York before expanding to select cities nationwide. Learn more at kinolorber.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. This week we take a look at the wealth of cinematic delights on offer in this fall's repertory programs, both in person in New York City and online. To guide us through the thicket of newly rediscovered gems, lost classics, and thematic programs, I've invited three experts, programmers and critics Gina Tellaroli, Ine Prakash, and Steve McFarlane, to discuss some of the series from the next few months that they're most excited about. These include Anthology Film Archives' ongoing Imageless Film series, the upcoming Hugo Friganese and Beth B. retrospectives at MoMA, the online series Spectral Grounds Black Experimental Film, and many more. Check the show notes for links. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. Today we're going to look at the repertory cinema landscape in New York City, online, and we have some very special guests who are experts in this field, among other fields. And Gina, can you introduce yourself? I'm Gina Tellaroli. I'm a filmmaker. I um, currently work for the Film Foundation on their new online restoration screening room, um, helping them get that started. And then I also write, and I mean, I write for Film Comment. I work for the New York Film Festival. I don't know. And then I go to the movies. And I work at Anthology. Maybe I do too many things. In any case. (laughs) In any case, we appreciate all the things that you do. You do a lot of great things. And here you Um, are to talk today. You're here to talk about old movies that uh, are newly available. So thank you for joining. My name is Ine Prakash. I (laughs) am very glad to be here with you all. I am a cinema programmer at Maisel's Documentary Center in Harlem. Uh, I also work with festivals, the San Diego Asian Film Festival right now, and I run a film festival called Prismatic Ground that's like uh, centered on experimental documentary and avant-garde film um, and had its second edition in May. I also like uh, go into the movies, running into Gina at the movies, um, excited to talk about movies. And we have last but not least, my name is Steve. I work as the department assistant in uh, MoMA Film. Previous to that, I have over 10 years experience, um, you know, writing about movies and also organizing screenings at Spectacle, which is a all-volunteer micro-cinema in Williamsburg. I still do some of that work, but um, yeah, I don't go to the movies as often as Gina and Ine, sadly, but it's always a pleasure to run into people. And, you know, I think it's good that you want to have this conversation because the, the New York city scene is as popping now as it's been since I moved here in 2008, I think. So yeah, there's like, there's a, a lot going on 
this fall and right now. I think it's interesting that um, all all three of you are programmers, which I, and I think it's uh, I'm happy to hear. I'm excited to hear your your perspective on how these series come together. Maybe a little bit more of like kind of that nitty gritty background uh, rather than just sort of a critical outsider's a, a critic's perspective. So Gina, take it away. There's this great series coming up. For a few months now, Anthology has been doing what I think is probably this, the programming series of the year, if not the last few years, they've been doing an incredible imageless film series. And in September, it'll be, they'll be doing their fifth kind of cycle of it. And there's just some like not to be missed programs in it. And it's the, you know, you say imageless films and you're thinking, it's like, what does that mean? And it means a variety of things. It means films that instead of, you know, images that were filmed their words or there are no images or there's images that we wouldn't you know that are out of focus or not as they normally would be it's like such a wide range of things i highly recommend um just going to the anthology website and maybe even reading through the past programs and getting a sense of what's played because it's just a real embarrassment of riches and things that aren't um typically programmed that often but in September, there's maybe the most, what I think will end up being maybe the most exciting thing that's happened in New York repertory in a long time. Anthology is doing a program, I think it's on September 21st, um, an imageless films program of voicemails that have been left at Anthology over the years. Um, and there's, I think, maybe, I don't know exactly what the program will consist of, but I've heard rumors that, you know, there'll be voicemails that filmmakers have left. Um voicemails from you know a big part of repertory obviously are all the wonderful characters that come to the theaters and inhabit our lives so I think there'll be voicemails from who knows who I think some will be funny and some will be disturbing and there'll be voices of people we love whose films we love I just think it's going to be a really exciting and surprising um event and also one that kind of I think when talking about repertory cinema like It'll be, it's like the hidden depths of repertory cinema, right? The people who, um, you know, are part of the theater experience, um, whether as filmmakers or audience members. Um, and another program also that's playing in Imageless Films, it's, there's probably playing my favorite film that I've seen all year, Kurt Krenz, 4283 No Film. I think it's, um, it's a very short film. Let me just double check how short it is. Um, okay, it's a three second film. And I think it's maybe my favorite film that I've seen all year. It played in an earlier cycle of images films. I don't want to talk too much about it, except that I highly recommend um, you go to see it because I got the biggest laugh that I've gotten all year. It's playing in After Image Program 1 on Saturday, September 10th, um, along with some brackage. Um, so it promises to be a good, a good program. And then there's Markopolis is playing, which is, you know, always a treat to see, especially on film. Temenos happened earlier this summer, so I'm excited to revisit um, Markopolis in maybe a less um, bug-filled um, environment. So, yeah, I think, like, just check it out. Bradley Arrows and Jed Rapfogel and John Claxman have done a really great job of just putting together a really interesting program that I think really challenges what cinema is, 
um, the importance of the image versus the importance of sound, what it means to sit in a collective space with people and really just share the space. Because often you're just, you know, what you what you see is who's around you, not what's on the screen. So I think it's probably, it's just super exciting. And I'm really glad that we have another cycle of it this month. Yeah, watching films like that, uh, I'm thinking of like Markopoulos, especially more durational works, you do kind of get this like Lamont Young dream house feeling at a certain point where you're experiencing the space and your own breathing and your own heart heartbeat as much as the uh, images or lack thereof, as much as the artwork. It's, it's an exciting series for sure. I know you also had something at, uh, there's a series at MoMA coming up. Yeah, well, it started yesterday and I think it's, you know, it's funny. It's a Hugo Fragon essay series. And I think it's exciting for a few reasons. One is that we don't typically get, um, you know, classic Hollywood director retrospectives anymore. They've really, when I moved to New York, we had those all the time. There'd be a Nick Ray series, an Anthony Mann series, you know, and we just, I feel like that's not part of the repertory landscape as much these days for many reasons, but we especially very rarely get director retrospectives of these B and C directors. Why do you think that that is? What do you think those director retrospectives, especially classic Hollywood directors are, are not as common? I think they're ex probably expensive. I mean, film form, I think does them a little bit. Maybe they still have an audience for that kind of thing. I do know they're expensive. There's a lot of prints. I think they don't get the turnout that they used to get. Maybe we just had King Vidor at uh, Lincoln Center. That was it. That oh, was that's true. Although, you know, the funny thing about that is that had been planned so many years ago. Like they started working on it. I don't know, three or four. I feel like four or five, you know, a long time ago. I remember Thomas telling me that he and Dan were doing Vidor. And I wonder if like that hadn't been in the works years and years ago, if they would have done it. You think it's just too, I mean, I'm wondering if it's just like, if it's, there's a sense that uh, it's just kind of too obvious <laughs> or uh, it's no longer inventive to just sort of collect all the works of a single filmmaker or the sort of, the sort of auteurist perspective is no longer maybe what's driving repertory screenings. Because I know... Steve was mentioning this before we started, but about this kind of thematic festival and, and programming approach. Well, I mean, let me jump in real quick because I worked on the Fragonese series. I can kind of say like there may very well be an appetite, you know, in New York or L.A. or San Francisco, maybe in L.A. and San Francisco for this kind of retrospective. But there's no incentive from the studio side, especially to go to the labor of renting you know, preserving and renting 35 millimeter prints and Gina jump in because you're the expert here. But like basically without a sort of superstar curator like um, Dave Kerr or uh, Asan Koshbacht who organized Freganese first at Cinema Retrovado and which made it possible for it to happen in MoMA, you know, those people can make the argument to the right kind of authorities that, hey, oh, hey, this is really important. You know, we want to do this. We want to platform this. There is an audience for this, you know, um, and Freganese is kind of obscure, right? So you would never get like a box set where all these different major Hollywood studios or leftover <clears throat> remnants of the Hollywood studios would collaborate on something like that. This is really your only chance to see the work in a kind of linear chronology. And it's not even, this is no diss, you know, because it's very hard even to get, you know, 10 films, but this is not even a complete career retrospective. That would be much harder to pull off. But um I think the bread and butter, you know, single filmmaker retrospective, it's going to be around forever, but it's also just not as tenable financially and logistically 
as it might have been, you know, 10, 20, 50 years ago. So let's talk about why Fregonese is so interesting then and, and why he merits this this retrospective now. You know, it's funny. I knew that I had watched all of his films a long time ago and I was trying to figure out when that was. And I think in my brain, I mean, I no longer know when anything happened, but in the past. However, I um, was imagining that this was around 2013. <laughs> I was imagining that I watched these films in 2013. Um, and then I found this video I'd uploaded and a piece that I'd written about Black Tuesday. And they were they had both happened in 2011. And I was like, why? What was happening in 2011? And how did I get on to Hugo Freganese? And I realized that that was when Raul Ruiz died. And I like read Poetics of Cinema. And one of the first things he does in like in the opening pages of Poetics of Cinema is he like lists these directors that were like of his childhood, these directors that he watched. And it's like a funny you know, it's like a list. It's like Ford Beebe and Reginald Leborg and Joseph H. Lewis and Hugo Fraganese. And I think that's what set me off on tracking down all these films. And I went to Cargarga and downloaded all the files and I watched them all. And they're like, I don't know, most of them are just incredible. And I actually was at Il Cinema Retrovado and got to see a lot of them on the screen for the first time earlier this summer. And they're just, I don't know, they're really fun inventive scrappy little movies and I actually think it's a really good time and an important time to kind of revisit like these films that essentially are genre are kind of traditional like of the classic Hollywood system but are also really invented with their camera work they're scrappy they're strange I just feel like there are so many good lessons especially for young filmmakers to be gained through these films um and I definitely recommend checking out like Poetics of Cinema and just like the energy that Ruiz kind of came to these films with when he was young. And, you know, no one would think of Raul Ruiz as like classical or like old fashioned. And these are the films that inspired him. And I think even entering them with through that lens can be really um, special. And, you know, I think the highlight of the series, I mean, I haven't, I've only ever seen this film on like this kind of, I mean, I think it's kind of beautiful, but it's, you know, objectively a horrible file, like some VHS off TV horrible thing is um Black Tuesday. It's the one I actually wasn't able to see in Bologna because I left on Monday and they programmed the film, of course, on a Tuesday. That was me not really thinking ahead about my schedule very well. Um but I also, the restoration that um, the Film Foundation worked on of Apache Drums is beautiful. And that's a really crazy movie. Speaking of like imageless films and audio, like what um, Apache Drums does with audio is really incredible. And what it does with space is really incredible. Um, what years are these? were these films made? They're almost all from the 1950s. He basically, he left Argentina after making 1949's uh, Hardly a Criminal. And then he had a solid decade, decade in Hollywood. And then he kind of hit the co-production co circuit. He made some Italian films in the 60s and then returned to Argentina in the 70s. Um, yeah, and those, the, you know, got it this way, these are the ones that were the easiest to program because they're controlled by again, whatever's left of the major studios, you know, MGM, 20th Century, Universal. So to do a complete retrospective would probably involve some really intense detective work in Argentina 
you know, and maybe there will be the appetite for that after this retrospective. I don't know. But, so he has a, he, there's a body of work that uh, of Argentinian <laughs> films that he made. Yeah. That are presumably kind of in the similar uh, kind of genre. Yeah, there, there, there's one included. There's one included, which is Apenas un delincuente, almost a criminal, and that's like a film noir from 1949, um, made in Argentina, you know, preserved by UCLA and the Film Noir Foundation. Yeah. But also, Gina, I'd be curious. I mean, you, you know these films better than I do. I've just sort of talked to Dave about it and done some print checks, but it seems like one of the main sort of themes is his ability to, to reinvent himself um, in different contexts and, and for different audiences where he's sort of uh, burying his own identity, but at the same time, there's stuff that pops up. I don't know if you could talk about the themes. or It has been a chunk of years since I've watched them all in close proximity. But yeah, they, you know, genre wise, especially he leaps from, you know, genre really fluidly and even tonally like um, Black Tuesday is pretty dark. Blowing Wild is, I don't know, super perverse. But then you have something like Saddle Tramp, which is Joel McRae. It's a really just good hearted Western about a man kind of coming to terms with like growing up. It's like the most simple, beautiful human thing that you could possibly have and then you have these other weird movies that are like strange love triangles and like that really do feel perverse and like they're from the mind of someone who's like in some kind of dark dark devious world apache drums politically is really intense to think about so yeah he he really i think runs the gamut and like each film is a surprise like i think if you go to moma um each film is going to present you with all of these different things. But there, I mean, I really, there is a kind of through line of inventiveness of really working well with his actors. You know, the fifties is a fascinating time in terms of how different directors, Fregonese or, you know, Alan Dwan is a great example of using these Hollywood stars who are a little bit past their prime. You know, you've got what in one way street is it James Mason and Dan Durier. You've got Barbara Stanwyck and Gary Cooper, I think, in Blowing Wild and an older Joel McRae, who's like kind of, you know, you get the sense that he's supposed to be kind of younger, yet he's like a little old to be this like dude who's running around not wanting to settle down. And so you have this mix of like inventive filmmaking with Hollywood stars kind of past their prime. I don't know. There's just so many beautiful thing to discover. I think the main thing is, and I think this is part of, this is a question I've never really been able to answer. And it's maybe the question I like bring forth um, as I like with all the different things that I do with cinema, which is I watch these kind of films from classic Hollywood, especially B or C pictures or pre-coded films. And they're so, to me, so inventive, right? You take these limitations they had kind of from making films within the studio system. And I think they're just so inventive and strange. And, you know, underneath that apparatus, like there's so much to be learned. And I think so many, I think a lot of people just look at them and see old movies. And I, I'm always a little perplexed by how we, how we bypass that, right? How can we recontextualize these kinds of films so that people see the inventive spirit underneath maybe the studio system things you know I forget I was reading an interview with someone maybe I can like when someone else is talking later quickly pull up the book but um 
they were asked a question about old movies and they were like, there are no old movies. <laughs> like there's just no old movies. Everything. I'll find the quote because it's in, sitting next to me in a yeah. bag. But I feel like I've heard somebody say something similar about music now where like you can't really like people are like, oh, what are like the, what's the new music you like? But constantly everything is like constantly being revived and reissued. Yeah. And I think this we're, you know, we're kind of um, able to access cultures that are so fluidly that um it's hard to say like, yeah old movies i mean i think what i think what makes a movie old then would probably be like it's it's pro it's perspective it's approach like is is it is it stale and no longer does it no longer speak to to our moment to our lives today and i think what you're talking about is go ahead did you find it i found it it's alan renee who also has a series happening in New York right now. And he says, but for me, there is no such thing as old films. Every film made in the past hundred years becomes modern as soon as I see it. I'm always searching and I pray without scruple on any and all films. So there you okay, go. Well, so that's the, that's the distinguishing feature, whether or not Alain Rene has seen the film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Only then does it become, does it <laughs> cease to be old? <laughs> Hopefully he's keeping a, a really comprehensive list somewhere. Um, so, uh, I speaking of MoMA, I wanted to talk about another series that's starting at MoMA in September. This Beth and Scott B retrospective, um, and Steve, you probably know a little bit about this as well. And Gina, I'm sure you've seen these films. But uh, Beth and Scott B were kind of no wave filmmakers, still are. I don't know if they would self-identify as no wave. And um, this retrospective uh, is pretty comprehensive. Steve, do you know? It's everything that they directed when they were, you know, um, a couple, a filmmaking couple. And then it's everything that Beth has directed. So Scott, Scott B is going to be there for the opening weekend, which I believe is um, The Trapdoor and G-Men. And then Beth is going to be there for uh, her film Hallelujah. Okay, so the bulk of their work together was in the 80s. They made these extremely scrappy kind of punk influenced, uh, very New York very uh homemade snotty <laughs> uh you know just extremely what you would you know starring john lurie starring uh richard uh what's his name the first drummer for sonic youth and i can't remember his name is escaping me right now you know very, you know just scenesters from the downtown scenesters and so uh, their first film the offenders uh is is a movie that i like a lot though as steve has mentioned it can be kind of tough going because it is so it's like very very rough around the edges it's like an extremely low budget version of um what is already an extremely low budget movie lizzie borden's born in flames and you know there's an overlap in terms of cast uh there's a lot of members of the bush tetras i think as most of the members of that band appear in this film and john lurie who i mentioned already uh, plays this kind of like sleazy punk psychopath character but it's all kind of cartoonish and um I mean, this is sort of one of the themes I want to discuss more broadly, if we have time. This program is kind of an outgrowth of the Club 57 program that MoMA had a few years ago, which was sort of a, I would say it was curated in specific ways, but it was also a survey show of artists from the quote unquote kind of new wave or no wave downtown, you know, kind of scene. And there's a ton of overlap between Beth and Scott, um, Amos Poe, uh, you know, Lydia Lunch. One of Beth's films is a documentary about Lydia Lunch. Um, Lydia Lunch is yeah, in a lot yeah, of her yeah. films. Andrew Horn, who I organized a retrospective of, worked with a lot of the same, you know, people 
behind and in front of the camera. And I think, um, you know, the buried lead maybe is that Kino Lorber has restored Brett Woods, Kino Lorber has restored and is making available all this stuff for I'm assuming Blu-ray or streaming or both. Um, I do think it's kind of interesting when kind of younger people, and I would include myself like 10 years ago, you know, they get lured into watching this stuff because they expect it to be really transgressive and propulsive and kind of in your face. Um, and it is, but it's also very Brechtian and very distancing and kind of endurance testing in a way. And I think it works well. I'm assuming it'll work well. We won't know until uh, a week and a half from now. I think it works well with an audience because, you know, they're influenced on the one hand, they're influenced by like the stuff that was on TV in the 50s when they were growing up. And you see that in like G-Man and Vortex and Salve stuff like that. I think Salvation. That, Salvation, yeah. for sure. On the other hand, you know, they're trying to sort of demystify the the apparatus or the spectacle of cinema and and then you really have to sit with it and it is like nails on chalkboard or it is like you know kind of i mean it's 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 aggressively un unpleasant i mean and in terms of like in terms of like the acting in salvation which has vigo mortensen and exine cervenka is like this like offensively <laughs> obvious like white southern white couple i think you know, or obsessed with, she's obsessed with like a televangelist, but yeah, but it just sort of, it's like, it is nails on chalkboard watching this, what these characters interact and then just, you know, very long shots of things that were you know, just waiting for the next uh, narrative beat to happen. But there's not really a narrative that makes any, that coheres. So I think that there is this kind of, yeah, I think you're, you're right that there's this um, distancing that happens that I think is, Seeing it with an audience, but also seeing it in a in a cinema on a screen on a big screen would would really you'd benefit from that. The film would benefit. And and not to linger on this too long, but you know Beth is also premiering a new film in this uh, retrospective, a short film. And you know it's going to be interesting to watch her sort of overall growth because or not growth, but like the development of her career because um you know like a lot of these people when she made such un she made such defiantly uncommercial films, you know, with Scott back then. And then eventually you have to figure out a way to make a living. Right. So her aesthetic has, I wouldn't say normalized, but it's become more mellow. Um, so it is pretty juxta. It's a stark juxtaposition to go back and look at the films, which, you know, they would get some rolls of film and then shoot this stuff and then edit it like that night and show it at a club, you know, the next day or the next weekend or something. Salvation. It's interesting you bring that one up because that's sort of an attempt at a more big budget, I wouldn't call it a studio aesthetic, right? But that's like kind of a link between the the black box earlier stuff that's just really somewhat. It's like professionalized a little bit. There's like a little bit a of little shine bit. on it. Yeah, just a little yeah. bit. Yeah, and it's interesting that I think she she turned much toward more towards documentary in the '90s, right? And yeah. um, I'm interested to check out a lot of those, a lot of short documentaries, and a lot of a lot of work from from that era up to today, which. It probably hasn't been seen nearly as much as as these early no wave works and then even even the no wave stuff um there was a new york times article last i think it was last summer 20 maybe it was 2020 about amos poe you know it's a weird impasse because a lot of these artists are still alive and do still live in new york but many of them you know uh, were not able to retain copyright or control of the materials or the materials just were never really made um safely reproduced for future generations, you know. So I think the work that MoMA's done, MoMA and especially Kino actually have done 
you know, sort of pulling Beth and Scott's films out of the wreckage and sort of making them available for more people to see. I think you're going to see more of that, but it's very, very difficult. I mean, a lot, a lot of films from that period are just kind of in somebody's basement somewhere or, you know, maybe not even. Yeah, possibly, you know, as as originally intended by the filmmakers to just sort of create the stuff and then speaking of originally intended this is maybe uh a, a, this would maybe is something that would be an entire episode but i'll just bring it up because i think this is a good point in in terms of what steve was talking about about these films being transgressive or not being transgressive what it means to watch them with an audience and also when i was like looking at this series um when i was looking at the moma like the descriptions and what was playing it i think one of the films had its restoration work done at a place called gamma ray digital and one of the more interesting things i've read recently i mean i've been rereading these projections the series of books called projections all these things that john borman edited a long time ago like all these interviews with filmmakers whatever anyway one of the interviews in one of the books that i was skimming through um again i can't remember who the interview is with i think it's karen kusama um but she was saying and i mean i've done literally no research into this but i'm just gonna trust her because i don't see a reason not to um that when you watch film, like a film print, it emits alpha rays and those get the active part of your brain going. But when you watch something digital, like when you watch something on your computer or you watch something on your TV, or I guess even a digital projection, it activate it emits beta rays, which only activate the passive part of your brain. I'm not sure this is going to, you think this should be its own episode? <laughs> I don't know. I kind of think it's an interesting. We got to get some scientists. It's on. made me. Think, it's made me think a lot. Um, just about how how that affects how people engage with repertory cinema. Because I also work in restorations, and so many of them are digital. And I was like, how is this changing how these movies are being perceived by audiences? If suddenly they're less active, if they're not engaging the active part of our brain anymore, and they're emitted, like doing something that makes us much more passive. Anyway, it seems like this is a fact that might be especially relevant for the Beth B series. Let's call it. Let's call it a factoid until until officially confirmed. <laughs> I think there's a nug. I think there's a grain of truth to this, no matter what. Like I think. <laughs> But I think I've certainly found uh, just I've paid a lot of close attention to something, a digital projection, you know, in a in a cinema. I'm not saying it's an attention thing. I'm saying the part of your brain that gets lit up while you're that's activated. Yeah. Sure. I believe you. I, I choose to believe as well. I feel it. I, I need to. <laughs> see I think I sense it. I call it grain therapy. I need a certain amount of celluloid exposure every month. And, and this must be why. Well, grain right. therapy. Grain therapy. Brain therapy or grain therapy? Brain therapy. Oh, okay. I guess it's it's not brain. as in like your morning your morning bowl of oatmeal. No, but serves the same purpose. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. That I just seemed like that might be a place for that fact. That I, I think that's really interesting. No, I think it's fascinating. Thank you for bringing it up. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. In a speaking of that, what's your plan for grain therapy coming up this September? Do you have any 
specific grains? What's the harvest looking like? What's what's showing on film? Grain therapy applies specifically to things that are being shown on film. So I'll shout out there are two there are two programs dedicated to to Larry Gottheim's work coming up at uh, Spectacle and Maisel's, uh, respectively. I believe the spectacle show is, if you're listening to this on Tuesday, there's a show happening tonight, uh, a collection of, of short films by Larry Gottheim. And then the show at Maisel's will be on Thursday on the 8th. And those will be three films at Maisel's. Uh, Fogline, uh, perhaps his, his best known film, uh, The Red Thread and and Mouche uh, Volant. The Red Thread and Mouche Volant are both in, in some way what I would call kind of... Um, ethnographic experimental films uh and and fog line is really uh quintessential landscape cinema and something kind of really beautiful to behold and all of those will be on 16 millimeter prints as will be uh the ones at uh spectacle um and then uh as, as long as i'm plugging uh hawking my own wares here uh the following week at mazel's um we started doing this series called uh, Truth Before Fiction, uh, which features films by filmmakers now best known for their narrative fiction work um, who started in documentary. So on uh, September 15th, we'll be showing uh, Pietro Marcello's The Mouth of the Wolf, which is a docu-fiction hybrid film about a sort of macho Italian guy and uh, recovering junkie uh, a trans woman named mary essentially two people who met in in prison and formed this intense love affair and then also had periods where one was in prison and the other wasn't so the film is made up of combined um archival footage it's also simultaneously about the italian uh sea side town of genoa uh and so there's archival footage um as well as reenactments uh by the two characters themselves and uh, interviews with them, as well as voiceover um, recording of the letters uh, they wrote each other while in prison. Uh, it's a it's a really beautiful film. Uh, this will be projected uh, digitally, but it's um, the film is shot and the film was shot actually digitally on DV uh, cam and then transferred to thirty five millimeter film. So it has this really distinct and beautiful look. These really crushed dark colors. Um, and uh, yeah, and uh, that's exciting too because Pietro Marcello's new film uh, L'Envers uh, will be playing at the New York Film Festival, Scarlet. And um, yeah, and he's someone who, you know, uh, sometimes is referred to Mouth of the Wolf as his, as his debut feature, but he made, he had at least one feature documentary before that, uh, I know of called Crossing the Line and, and Mouth of the Wolf was kind of his crossing over. The films since then have been more squarely in the fiction camp. There's Martin Eden and... Uh, the Lost Beautiful. And uh, Per Lucio was a documentary that I think uh, last year's, yeah. Right. But he, yeah, he's continued making docs as well. That's, yeah. Even in the fiction films like Scarlet, uh, you know, the, he, he maintains some remnant. You'll see archival footage sort of uh, inserted without much hesitation. And so I think he, it's, it's interesting to see a filmmaker whose concerns are very much rooted in the documentary practice um, at the center of that evolution. As you said, the, the DV stuff, I was thinking about like, you know, in Vanda's room being, was, I imagine that these movies activate the alpha waves too. There's no way that seeing that movie. Has... I mean, there is maybe science behind that if it's true. However, I will say that Mouth of um, the Wolf totally is amazing and everyone should go see it no matter the format. It's a pretty rad film. And then also 
And Scarlet at the uh, Scarlet is Scarlet is quite good too. There's more on that. It was, sure. it, it was one of my favorites at, at Cannes this oh, past really? year. Cool. Cool. But um, is Larry going to be there for the screenings? Larry will be at both screenings. Well, I mean, I think in 2018, Anthology did like a super comprehensive Gottheim. I don't know. It felt like it was a weekend wherever, like like 12 of us just watched every Larry Gottheim film and then listened to him talk for hours on end. And it was just, I don't know, a really special weekend. And those films are really special and beautiful. And I just highly, yeah, if you are listening to this on Tuesday, like change your plans for the night and go watch those movies. He's an incredibly generous uh, person in, in terms of talking about his work and sharing his expertise as well. So I, yeah, I think it'll be really special to have him there. Yeah, so that's going to be on Tuesday, September, what is that, 6th? Tuesday, September 6th, it's Spectacle, and then on at Maisel's on September 8th. Eight. Yeah, and they're two distinct uh, programs. Uh, but just to not be solely a self-promoter, I'll shout out some stuff I'm excited about uh, elsewhere as well. Um, we're covering a lot of ground on this, so people are going to be all over. It's a very busy uh, September for... As they should files. be. Uh, as they should be get get the to the movies or, or and also go to the beach and get some vitamin d before the long winter all right yeah, yeah. vitamin uh, upper balance well, you, know, you got to see as many movies as possible before the nba season starts right gina because then you're going to be locked on league pass i well i know i'm now i don't know i'm still processing the the caps trade from yesterday so i have well, to i have to really be um think about how i'm looking at the season so that's a whole that's its own project it's gonna be it's gonna be good, trust me. I still I'm I think you're yeah, once you can once you step outside and have some perspective, it's a good trade. <laughs> All right, sorry, sorry, Anna, go, keep going. I don't know enough about basketball to even make a segue from that. But I was gonna shout out um uh the the series uh coming up at Metrograph at the end of the month, um, focused on mid-length films, um, which is uh exciting because these are films that often will show up at festivals um, or in other sort of specialty contexts, but that don't get shown in theaters often because uh, they're all, I mean, they're awkward lengths in, in terms of um, people expect 90 minutes of movie, usually at least uh, when they go to see a feature film and, and shorts are put into blocks. Often when mid-lengths are, are programmed, they're put as double bills or along with short films, but this Metrograph series is just highlighting them as um as as single entities um so you know people love uh, i feel like people are always complaining about the lengths of things so there's no excuse here there's some great movies um they have uh, a picture pong uh where's that goons i mean is it kurt krenz though the three second film that's like the baseline for me now yeah that's kurt krenz i really i really again go see that go see that movie i just it made me so happy we're we're talking a little longer here. Too long, too long, I say. Up to sixty minutes, which yeah, all right. If you're going to use the Kirk Kren film as your uh, as your measure, perhaps is is a bit long. But um, they're beautiful films. Like Mekong Hotel, uh, a Pichapongwear Sedekins uh, movie. I mean, people who caught Memoria Fever um, should definitely uh, check this out. Um, Heaven is still far away uh, by Ruske Hamaguchi. Again, you know, another another filmmaker who who blew up in a major way last year would drive my car. And whose films tend to be a little bit more than mid-length. Yeah, right. So if you got burned out on the three-hour-plus drive my car, this is a, a good way to cool off. And then there's also, uh, so far, scheduled um, 
you know, a, a lesser programmed Kurosami film called The Experience and uh, the Czech New Wave filmmaker Jan Nemec's uh, Diamonds of the Night. Uh, that's a, a concept I was excited uh, to see because, like I said, these films tend not to get programmed uh, and thus not seen. Oh, yeah, that is an exciting program for sure. Uh, Steve, we've run out of time, so we're going to bump you. I'm just kidding. No, you get <laughs> five minutes. Yeah, our musical guest tonight is um, Soul Asylum. So, Steve, you're going to have to come back tomorrow. I know you you wanted to talk a little bit about a, uh, this program, Spectral Grounds. Maybe you could tell us a little bit, like, you know, provide some background. And in... yeah, um, I'm only really able to talk about it because the curators were gracious enough to send me a kind of a sneak peek. But it was announced, I think, two weeks ago on social media. Spectral Grounds is the first iteration of what I. I hope will become a repeating thing. Um, it is an entirely online festival of black experimental film. And uh, it's put together in collaboration with two organizations. One is Culture Arts Society. The other is Monan Gambi, um, which is based in a micro cinema in Lagos, Nigeria. Um, I know some of the curators. Uh, Awa Konate is a very, very rigorous curator based in Europe of black cinema. Um, Crystal... Olokoi. They've both been very active in the space for the last few years and just sort of writing about and hosting kind of one-off um, in-person programs of important contemporary and also repertory Black filmmakers and video artists. This is the first kind of survey or collection thing that's this big and this ambitious. Um, it's going to run from, I think this is within the range of what we're talking about on this podcast going to run from September 19th through 25th and you know it's a mix it, a lot of it is contemporary work um almost all of it by uh femme or you know non-binary black artists uh many of whom are from countries you know I've like never even seen a film from Somalia for example but it's also sort of threaded in with stuff by people like um Franza Woods uh, Jamika Ajalon, uh, Camille Billups and James Hatch, um, Sarah Gomez, you know, so it's sort of like an interesting, it's really curated in terms of putting something, juxtaposing things that are contemporary with things that are at this moment, maybe a little bit more established. Again, kind of like what we were saying about totally different beat, but we were talking about Fregonese or Beth B. Um, these are artists whose works, you know, never got mainstream distribution in any form. So in some way, the best way to keep awareness, keep people sort of focused on it is to keep programming, right? Um, Franza Woods, we included in our Black Heroine series at MoMA in 2018, or 2020 actually, sorry. That, you know, happened because her films were in the permanent collection, but she was still a relatively unknown quantity. And I think, you know, heightened attention to Black, especially, especially avant-garde, especially non-narrative cinema, in some ways has sort of given her a little bit more of a moment. Now she's, it's posthumous, right? Um, but I think that that's happening more and more often. That so someone who has a small, but very, very fascinating body of work gets this kind of attention, you know, even after their life is over and becomes sort of part of this sort of second canon. And I see this festival as, you know, a pretty important step in rectifying some of those lapses. And bringing those films into conversation with contemporary work as well, right? Totally. And, and you know, um, Ayana Dozier, Dozier, who writes for Screen Slate, who's based in New York, who's involved in all kinds of stuff. They have a film in the program. Um, I think what was really interesting to me about this is 
uh, it feels weird to call something a throwback to two years ago. But, you know, when the pandemic first hit, there was this kind of amazing outpouring. And, you know, Ine, you've continued this with uh, Prismatic Ground being online and being free. But for the most part, programs that were kind of blowing people's minds in the spring and summer of 2020 in the online space have not, uh, I wouldn't say they've continued at the same pace. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I think this to me seemed like not a step backwards, but more just like, yeah, that, that was a good idea back then. And it continues to be, you know, to make things accessible, to find ways to host screenings for free on per in person or host screenings for free online. Maybe there's a way to supplement that in person. This is not a New York based, you know, festival. So even calling it like New York City rep is a little bit disingenuous, but you know, these are young curators and I think that what they're doing, you know, what we should be seeing more of in the physical space in New York City. Um, I've not seen any kind of black avant-garde festival, you know, on a consistent basis here in the city, I don't think. You know, you can speak to this, I'm sure, but like, it's much easier to put something like this together online or is it in terms of financially it's easier space-wise, time-wise? What aspect of it? In terms of getting prints getting um, people, getting the film, tra travel, rental, you know, equipment rental, uh, manpower, project, you know, projectionists, uh, ticket takers, yeah. getting like a, getting like a liquor sponsor, you know, like having somebody make all the phone calls <laughs> to get the liquor sponsor. Yeah. When you're talking about resources, absolutely. I mean, um, Steve mentioned Prismatic Ground. When I started that, the first year was all virtual and it was definitely an opportunity I saw because I didn't wouldn't have those costs. And so I think for uh, people working without, you know, considerable institutional support, um, yeah, it's huge. But that's that's not a reason I think that, you know, as Steve kind of alluded to, that these things shouldn't be happening in also in brick and mortar spaces. Um, I mean, one, one theme that I kind of keep returning to, I guess, in this conversation is that that programs, you know, I used to think if I organized a program that it was like, you know, done, it had been published, it had been announced, it had been listed, maybe it had been received some coverage. And then that's like stapled to the wall. And that's like a fact. And that's history, you know, at least for me. And then, therefore, there's no, there's never going to be a need to revisit that or expand on it or you know, certainly if someone else did it, I would be really affronted. And over the well, years- until, until Ellie and Renee sees it, and then it's new again. Exactly, yeah. Um, but over the years, my thinking has evolved a little bit in the sense of like, obviously, a, a program like this that's so creative and so thematically tight and sort of organized by its own idiosyncrasy, you know, that's really important and that can't really be replicated. But I personally would never want to feel like because I programmed something it shouldn't show again within a few years afterwards. In other words, it seems like it, the best hope for these films to kind of have a life is for them to be shown more often in more different contexts. Um, I don't know if Spectral Grounds is going to do something like you did in a where the second year there is an in-person component and then you're sort of jockeying, you know, what's interesting and what's unmissable about a physical screening versus, you know, free access online within a fixed timetable. I think that's a really fascinating sort of set of choices to put to the viewer, you know. Speaking of the viewer, I think the thing, the reason like these programs are important and even like what I'm doing now with the Film Foundation, which is every month, um, all you, you know, we're, 
the Film Foundation is hosting a free online screening of one of their restorations. We're doing Samba Zanga this month. Um, a great, great film on September 12th. But, you know, so sign up because you should watch it if you're free. It's a beautiful, beautiful film. But not everyone lives in New York City. <laughs> like, we have to remember New York. Like, there are many people in the world that are interested, in the country, in the world, et cetera, that are interested in cinema. And, like, it's really important that a lot of these films can find people who live outside of New York. New York, you know, especially since New York is so insanely expensive now that I think, you know, it's so it's it's good that these things are accessible to a wider audience for free and that they can watch them. Um, as much as this is a repertory report of New York City, you know, there's just like a whole world of people out there. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think, I think, uh, I wonder if the status quo is to maintain this kind of in-person screenings with like, a, you know, you can't really program something that's been shown in New York City within the last five years because that's just not done in order to maintain this kind of artificial scarcity and make sure that, you know, a limited number of people have seen works or maybe not to maintain this, but I think that's the that's one of the secondary effects of this established kind of uh, in-person repertory cycle. And so you have people who are like experts who, who've seen all, who will go see all the Fregonese in person, and then we won't see it. It won't be available for another five years. And so then people will have hear rumors of Fregonese bubbling up. Whereas when when we have these uh, accessible free online programs, that's not the case. Anybody can see it anytime. You don't have to be in New York. You don't have to. It's the time frame is sort of is a little bit more uh, a little bit more open. I think that it sort of um, destabilizes that more traditional state. Um, approach to repertory program honestly like five to ten years ago i might have agreed with that i mean i do think that, that repertory in new york there is still this weird idea of competitiveness and scarcity but i honestly think like institutional like our collective memory of things is just i mean it's interesting to i don't know i think i'm maybe older than all of you it's really it's a weird thing to like have experienced so much repertory and to have published things on films and on to these retrospectives and then I think honestly with social media now there is this bizarre trend towards people wanting to have ownership over discovery and there doesn't seem to be a desire to look to the past and find out who programmed it first or when it first played there's just like oh I've discovered this and here it is and I don't know I do feel this like erasure era you know this erasing of the past happens in in terms of this sometimes in terms of like people feeling like they need the validation online and to own the, like the discovery of something instead of seeing something as a connective tissue that we revisit and rediscover from time to time. It's, it's just, I don't know. It's just interesting. <laughs> well, I just, I definitely see people who I presume are younger than I am who are like uh, liberating video files and putting them on Google drive for everyone to see. And on the one hand, you're like, Oh wow, that access is so important. On the other hand, that could be blowing this still alive filmmaker's last chance at any kind of residual income from their film finally getting picked up by a distributor, you know? And I think not everyone is as tuned into the the sort of vagaries of those discussions as uh, full-time or even part-time programmers, you know, who have to make those agreements and figure out how it's going to work logistically. So for them to be able to set back to spectral ground, for them to be able to set this whole thing up, um, you know, crediting, and I don't know if they're paying, but but with the full participation of these artists showing new restorations or work that someone maybe just made and put on Vimeo a year ago, you know, it, it sort of reflects all of these complexities in, I think, a positive way. It sounds really fun. I somehow missed 
the social media announcement. So I'm only learning about it because of this podcast and I'm very excited. Yeah, I think my lesson of like going through this scene on, you know, in the last whatever, 17 years that I've lived in this city is like, at some point, like you just, things are gonna, I don't know. I just, the memory gets lost and you just have to like accept these cycles of things and also kind of try not to worry too much about like I mean what you just said about filmmakers and their rights and like things getting picked up that's all super real but I don't know shit's gonna happen man people are gonna find you know I don't know you just I'm trying to be more chill about things <laughs> I mean one other interesting thing that I hadn't realized until I started working in the film department at MoMA um Dave the curator of the Fregonese series the biggest advocate for streaming Dave Kerr right yeah yeah and and it's sort of at first you would think, oh, the, the classic Hollywood sort of, you know, maestro would be less inclined. But I think he understands that that's the best chance that these films have of getting slight people who don't happen to live in New York, L.A. or Paris or whatever, you know. So will, will Freganese be streaming? No. Will this series perhaps create an audience or an awareness of Freganese that could lead to more people getting access somehow in the future? Yes. Well, How would that work? And that's me, you know. I mean, Freganese could have a uh, series on Criterion Channel, you know. I can see that happening. I mean, I've seen Criterion Channel does sometimes run programs that that bear at least a resemblance to something that happened in person, you know, in New York. Like there's a James Wong Howe thing right now, and it's a different lineup. But Museum of the Moving Image did that earlier in the summer. So this kind of oh, spitball effect, I think, is a good thing, as long as no one personally feels stepped on or whatever, you know. And as long as the filmmakers and the artists and the and the people behind the scenes are getting paid properly, <laughs> yeah. As I think you said. And then pivoting slightly, you know, it's not telling tales out of school. Like Spectacle was very robustly streaming the entire time the theater was shut down. And we did find, if I may say, I think we found kind of a new audience, you know, people who had wanted to come check it out, but didn't happen to make it to New York. And, you know, when we received the, when we decided and when it appeared to be safe enough to reopen physically, that whole aspect kind of just went like, poof, you know. And almost every meeting, I'm kind of like banging this drum of like, we're, you know, this is a good opportunity to continue sharing our, you know, the films that we feel like we've discovered with a bigger audience and also to let people know that we exist. And, you know, the intellectual or the creative capacity, it's not the intellectual, the creative capacity is just not there because we're all volunteer. Um, and no one think about a streaming program in addition to just like, how are we going to keep our doors open? Yeah. How are we gonna there's only so much bandwidth that you have. And so these things, are, yeah. So Inu, how do you, how have you thought about this, this same issue? Well, no, I, I, I just, yeah, I think that's right. I think the issue of a brick and mortar institutions not continuing to stream is also one of resources, uh, limited labor and creative resources. And so the fact that we uh, have people who continue to do um, streaming programs and to make them as accessible as possible is really important you know I, I think a lot about how different my sort of um uh film education in an autodidactic sense would have been growing if i was if i were um coming of age now you know rather than when i did and i was grateful to have access to criterion dvds at the library but um i mean that idea of access outside of new york is um is huge in terms of uh, how how it will shape uh, future generations of people who are doing film work. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable to think that you could that if when like when I was in high school, the idea of of being able to see like Sam Bizanga is just like not 
just like that's that's just not happening you know maybe i can find like the passenger on vhs at like a video video store in a town like 20 miles away maybe that happens but yeah i think it's interesting that it, that it kind of demystifies these films and, and this work in a way that allows us to kind of really grapple with the films themselves rather than the cultural baggage that they carry as objects that are marginalized or impossible to find or you know that are uh, fetishized as you know finds scores by programmers or cinephiles just to link together i think a few of the things we've talked about you know as much as it makes me sad to see like like the director retrospective like go out of fashion both maybe in terms of interest but definitely in terms of like cost and accessibility i think it is creating a space for a lot of these other films to be rediscovered for people who never had that kind of um, exposure to finally find their audiences like everything we were just talking about and i you know maybe in 20 years you know maybe our work as programmers as writers um maybe this is our challenge right now is to focus on this other thing and then in a, you know 20 years or whatever the old classic hollywood films will like you know it'll be a little more balanced sort of focus on that stuff because we'll have done kind of the work of exposing the films that never had that exposure that have been marginalized um filmmakers from other countries you know american independent cinema from people that we you know that aren't as well remembered um so maybe you know and that's just something I think a lot. As much as I I love those films and I like always want to be watching them, but I think you also have to look at what's happening around you and, you know, challenge yourself to challenge yourself. And I think this is a good time for that. Yeah, I think that's a hugely important part of what we do. That's well said. Good. I think that's a I think that's a positive, uplifting note to end on. As well, and I think a, a message for the Cavaliers this year too, as well, the Cleveland Cavaliers to challenge themselves, well, I think, and push it to the limit. Well, <laughs> no, but I think what may, maybe this somehow spiritually fits in with this conversation. But I think what makes me what I'm having a hard time doing is last year the narrative of the Cavs was like young upstarts, like uh-huh. super young team performing way above expectation, and I think spiritually I'm like oh we just got a big star and now like we're supposed to be great. And I hate that narrative. That narrative is unexciting to me. I don't like that narrative. I want my young inexperienced team who performs he's better. He's still than young though. He's still young and he's way better than Darius Garland. And, and Evan Mobley is like a unbelievable. He's going to be dominant. I like being the underdog and now we're not an underdog and now I'm upset. <laughs> he's not that good. You can still be the underdog. Steve, you wanted to jump in though before we get sidetracked into into sports talk. I want to just like for thirty seconds plug this um, Karen Lamason series. It's happening in well, um, she is a Colombian Argentinian uh, artist who I believe was born in the states, but her main sort of body of work in film is uh, associated with the Grupo de Cali, which is with Colombian filmmakers. Uh, the most famous of whom is the late Luis Ospina. And she worked on a couple of what they call um, uh, gotico tropical horror films in the 80s, which kind of used this like macabre uh, sort of B-movie influence sort of aesthetic to talk about, you know, in, in clandestine terms, political uh, repression and, and sort of corruption that was happening in Colombia as they saw it. And it's an especially cool show because it's not just her film work, it's also in conjunction with a... Uh, gallery show at the 
want to say the Swiss Institute, running between the 14th of September through the 8th of January. Um, just a really cool, you know, a series that really demonstrates how, you know, for all the attention that we give above the line directors, you know, other people in other positions are hugely creatively and aesthetically influential on films and and also sort of a forerunner anthology. They say in their program notes, there's also going to be a, or a proper Ospina retrospective um, because he died in 2019 later this year. So and she's in pure, she's in Pura Sangre, right? Uh, pure Blood. I think she production designed it or art directed okay. it. Yeah. She worked on it, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which is also a film that we've played at Spectacle, you know, back when Ospina was alive. And there's also Ospina's three plus hour documentary, It All Started at the End, which is sort of a history of the Grupo de Cali and, you know, their personal relationships, their sort of self destruction, their legacy, what their films meant, where they came from. Just a really cool series that, that you know, kind of continues right lifting this rock and shining light on some stuff that's not really in the mix but totally deserves to be so i think she's going to be at some of the screenings as well it's really cool to think about the way that something like this uh, instead of instead of having like a, a big start date and an end date in terms of um the body of work like some like a director retrospective this kind of just her work kind of bleeds out into other fields into other forms of art into other parts of life so i think it's kind of cool that you can kind of see it move move beyond the movie on the films themselves and see how they kind of interact with the world. Thank you, Steve, for bringing that up. Those that, uh, that looks like an incredible series. And before we go, uh, any parting thoughts, you know, one, one director who had a retrospective recently as well at anthology, uh, was George Miller. And it occasioned one of the joyous repertory experiences I've ever had. Uh, Gina was there as well and witness to it. <laughs> I believe has some evidence and that was a, you know, a, a beautiful rep screening of the film, Happy Feet, which I never expected to see an anthology with plenty of dancing in the aisle. Oh, really? People got up and, and danced around? Yes. There were some children. There was the great Bradley Eros. There was dancing. There was singing and clapping. I mean, it's funny because it's a really happy movie. I mean, duh. But it's also really dark. And it made me like feel really bad to be alive. Happy Feet did, huh? It's the movie about how our desire over how we're horrible people who are overfishing and using too many resources and in turn these adorable penguins are like have no food to eat <laughs> but there's great songs so it's fine <laughs> but it was a really it was a really special screening i agree okay well thank you all for joining it's been a great conversation and uh we'll see you at the theaters thanks clint thank you thank you gina thank, thank you. you see y'all soon See you Tuesday. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Matthew Amarik's new film, Hold Me Tight, starring Vicky Creeps. 
In this Cannes Film Festival in Rendezvous with French Cinema Selection, Creeps gives a tour de force performance as a woman on the run from her family for mysterious reasons. Little White Lies calls it further proof that Vicky Creeps is one of the world's most exciting actors. Hold Me Tight opens September 9th at Film at Lincoln Center with a sneak preview on September 8th, followed by a Q&A with Amarik and Creeps. And don't miss the duo's appearance at a Film Comment Live Talk on Friday, September 9th at 6.30 p.m. at Film at Lincoln Center. More details are available at filmlink.org. Hold Me Tight also opens on September 9th at the Angelica Film Center in New York before expanding to select cities nationwide. Learn more at kinolorber.com.